we should we should do a uh, next month we should do um a half yearly state of play really because <laughs> i'm sure you've been playing video games haven't you in the in the meantime well not actually many new ones <laughs> i've just been playing boogie wings we were just talking about it actually yeah it's such a good game but it's clearly i wish boogie wings spawned many many sequels mm. but it was not to be you still there yeah can you hear me I can hear everything <laughs> more specifically can you hear me specifically yeah 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 i can hear everything including you i used to wonder that when i was a teenager like imagine if you could for like a nanosecond feel the pain of everyone that's ever lived and every possible thing that's ever happened to them and just how much that would smart electric shock off the car door yeah but through your entire lineage <laughs> um so yeah, you can imagine that if you could feel the pain of everyone that's ever lived all at once, it would be akin to getting a small shock off a car door from a Ford Cortina. So, <laughs> like, oh, this is a strange technical it's aspect, specific, isn't it? <laughs> um, I Definitely was not on Monday, though. I was thinking about the other day, I was humming Bad Moon Rising to myself by Creedence Court Clearwater Revival because I was wearing a T-shirt. And I thought, I wonder what. That's obviously perfect and well known for its use in werewolf movies. And I was just trying to think of other, well, I suppose they're cliches really, moments that certain songs could be used in films, or mm. that you, you know, you're watching a sequence in a film and you think, yes, I think I can guess what song is going to kick in now. <laughs> I don't know if you can think of any, but yeah, if anyone can think of it, I was just thinking about, yeah, someone turned into werewolf. It's bad memorizing my credence. And if you can think of any, send them to the men who talk at outlook.com. I don't know if you can think of any off the top of your head, Rupert. Not, not that I want to put not. you on the spot. <laughs> not specifically but um there are yeah i know what you mean there are certain tunes you just expect to just kick in and, it, and it's so lazy there was one in the latest in sonic the hedgehog 2 when there's a dance off there's a particularly lazy tune <clears throat> lazy disco tune i thought oh come on that's unnecessary yeah. that's too they easy could've, they could have hurtled into bind by Orteca at that one exactly i don't see why they yeah, didn't possibly like that speak. or maybe parhelic triangle i'm not sure which one <laughs> Yeah, if if, this, if that, that scene in Moonwalker where he flicks, he flicks the quarter when they all go silent yeah. and he lands in the jukebox and Smooth Criminal kicks in, if instead he's standing there and it's ching, and it clicks at the jukebox and the 45 record drops down and the needle moves across, and then it just went... Buying Biotech, I thought it was going to play Smooth Criminal then. It's not really a crowd pleaser, is it? <laughs> It's not, one of the, it's not one of the hit singles, is it? Um, <clears throat> so, and the other thing is, the other day I was, you know, I've been on this this sojourn to try and find good, like classic bad movies, like Godfrey Ho films, effectively. Yeah. And I really, I really want to watch Center of the Web with Robert Davi um, in charity shops, and I couldn't find anything. Do you remember I said all the films are too good? They was like, I don't want to watch like Tenet. I, I want to watch Godfrey Ho. Where did Ho's. I see Center of the Web then? Did they, was that on DVD, maybe? I bought it for you Gosh, about 15 years ago. What else do people, <laughs> people buy their dearest friends apart from <laughs> Davi films? With? Center of the Web of was the film where there's an actual shot from behind a spider web in the foreground and robert darby walks into yes the center of the web does he look at anything for instance the camera when that happens he does he does and mouths that's a metaphor i'm surprised he doesn't pop an eyebrow or at least strike a match on his skin and smoke a cigar um uh yeah so i was i've been looking for these dvds that don't seemingly exist they're too good so i, I have to just buy them online now 
but I came across a book in a charity shop and I just wanted to read up an excerpt from it. A couple of 13 excerpts. It was a book I found and it's written by someone called Peter Waylerner. Um, I've oh. never heard of him before as an author, but it's a book called Real Facts to True and Real oh. uh, by Peter Waylerner. And, and these, I mean, there's no, there's no evidence backing them up. They just, it's just a book of like four or 500 pages of these facts. Well, so we've got to assume they're true because they're in a book. Well, they obviously got past the proofreader and the editor. So, you know, they would say, like, oh, you can't do this because it's 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 not true. Not true. So, yeah, just I just I'm not even my favorite. These are just the first 13 in the whole book. <clears throat> so this is Real Facts That Are True and Real by Peter Wayloner. Eskimos have over two dozen words for Vauxhall Carlton. Fighting is a national language in 26 countries. Babies can backflip before they can understand VAT. Cheese used to be made of prawns. The weird thoughts you have before falling asleep are actually memories of previous lives on alien landscapes. Looking up is far less popular than looking down. After much research, it transpires that what Jack Lemon claimed was his favourite fruit was actually a heavily buttered ham sandwich. 88% of actors can't pronounce the words, this script isn't very good. A child's tears are highly poisonous if boiled. If you wear prescription contact lenses and then also put on a pair of the same prescription spectacles, you can see into the future. The better you are at fighting, the more girlfriends you'll have. If you stand in the shade anywhere in Africa, it's actually colder than a snowman's checkbook. And my favourite, this one. 92% of men recently questioned in Manchester City Centre agreed with a statement that they didn't fully grasp percentages or questions. So I, I thought, I, you know, it's just, it's a nice, it's a good toilet book, you know, to just pick up and, and like, you know, oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Could, you know, that yeah. could come in handy at like wine parties. It's nice that we could bring some of these, um, some of this knowledge into the podcast really, isn't it? It's and get the name the, out there. Peter Waylerner. Yeah. Presumably um, because I, I, he, the etymology of that word being that he was once a, a learner of ways, should we say. And now wants to ex- sort of expand that knowledge by by releasing books and uh, and sharing the love yeah i've never heard of him before but you know it's it seems like a good book so we'll keep looking out for more peter whalen and stuff i'll keep my eye out in the charity shops um i also <laughs> want to just spend a minute just explaining the arkansas rules for new listeners because i've had a i've generally had an, a, an inquiry about what the rules are and and, and how the word is spelt and obviously it's alan arkin to robert star so it's a-r-k-i-n Z apostrophe D-A-R, OBS. Um, and the rules are for the Arkansas, you've got to get, um, you know, from, for instance, this week, it's Carrie Fisher to Bradley Cooper in as few steps as possible, using only uh, links uh, of actors in films that they've been in, you know, with other actors. Um, and, and obviously, we've got no way of policing this, but mm. you're not you're not supposed to use Google. You're supposed to do it purely from memory or possibly by talking to a loved one. Or, as Rupert did when Will Smith was involved, by just reading articles <laughs> and interviews with Will Smith in the hope that he will mention a specific film. <clears throat> um, so Technically this, this not cheating. Um, unbelievably, unbelievably, after I do the Arkansas for this week, the Turbo Mega Super Ultra Arkansas, which was, you know, linking all of, of the Friends cast. I do remember I, about three days ago, I was thinking I might actually make this a communal thing and we'll all help each other out because I had no responses. And the only responses I had were people just saying, Brit, this is very difficult. So I thought, well, I'm, yeah, I'm struggling myself because I, I have to mention three to tango. Um, <clears throat> but 
then I had an answer from a new listener called Ben, who's done the Arkansas and the Turbo Mega Ultra Super Uber Arkansas. So I haven't wow. got another one, but um, yeah, I'm just going to go through them. So the Arkansas last week was to get from Carrie Fisher to Bradley Cooper. And I had a few responses, one an audio response from regular Utah Smith. So uh, Casey came back with Bradley Cooper is in Avengers Infinity War with Benicio Del Toro, who was in Star Wars The Last Jedi with Carrie Fisher. So that's a nice three-stepper there. Nice. Is that right? Bradley Cooper. So, no, that's a yeah. two-stepper. That's a two-stepper, sorry. Yeah. Uh, um, Brad, um, Bradley's in Avengers. Bradley Cooper. Yeah. Sorry, on. Bradley Cooper's in what? Avengers Within... Infinity with Benicio Del Toro. Who is in Star Wars with Carrie who is, Fisher? Who is Benicio Del Toro in Avengers? I don't. Uh, I know. I'm assuming that I know Benicio Del Toro is he like the collector or something? I thought that was in Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh God, yeah, yeah, there is. He is in. And which Star? He's in. <clears throat> oh, which Star Wars movie is it? I don't. Rogue I don't one? know. Is it, well, it oh. says you Star Wars: The Last Jedi with Carrie Fisher. Oh yeah. Yes, he's. Oh God, yeah, he plays a completely pointless character in that. Yeah, yeah, that's why I didn't remember him. Okay, <laughs> um, so that's two step. But we've also got uh, Max said um, this one is a weird one because he's written it in almost in like shorthand. It's it sort of says Carrie Fisher is with Adam Driver in Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Driver is with Lady Gaga in The House of Gucci. And Gaga was with Bradley Cooper in A Star Is Born. So that's a three-stepper. Yes. Uh, Laszlo Bucket said, is it cheating to scour your own DVD shelf in the hopes that you own films that feature people from the Arkansas? The answer to that is no, it's not. If you own them, have a bloody look, I say. Anyway, this is the best I've got. Carrie Fisher was in Austin Powers with Will Ferrell, who was in Anchorman with Vince Vaughn, who was in Wedding Crashes with Bradley Cooper. So another three-stepper there. A nice, a nice, I like I mean, that one. I like that journey. Comedy route, yeah. <clears throat> uh, ben who was basically our star listener for this week, said Carrie Fisher was in The Last Jedi with Benicio Del Toro, who's in Guardians of the Galaxy with Bradley Cooper. So that's a similar two-stepper there. Mm-hmm. And I have an audio clip from Utah Smith, which I'm going to play now. So this star, although on the surface seemed relatively straightforward, turned out to be quite the brain twister. Uh, I actually wrote a little mind map down, obviously good use of my time in work. Uh, I've got Carrie Fisher, or Carrie Russell, was in Carrie Fisher in one of the later Star Wars ones. Uh, I can't remember which one. Hopefully that still counts. And then Carrie Russell was in Matthew, was uh, in uh, Free State of Jones with Matthew McConaughey, uh, 2015, 2016, or something like that. And then uh, Matthew McConaughey was uh, in Failure to Launch with Bradley Cooper. Uh, the only reason I know Carrie Russell, and a side note so well, is that she's the actress that I think is in Mission Impossible 3 or 4, uh, when she has that little chip in her brain, and it goes off, and her eyes just go off in two different directions, and if you pause it, it's the funniest thing you'll ever see. I know it's quite a morbid scene, but they, <laughs> they really went to town on her eyes on that. <laughs> That's where the budget went. Uh, Utah Smith, of course, the only listener who has had a standing slam the door and walk out of the house argument with his wife over whether or not he should keep up his full cinema-sized banner poster of Twister framed in a custom frame in the living room above the television. Uh, <clears throat> and so moving on from that to the, which that was a three-stepper. So the winners this week, unless Rupert, you've got a two-stepper or one-stepper. I've not got a two-stepper, although it's got a slightly different direction, I think. 
than some others. So Bradley Cooper is in The Place Beyond the Pines with Ryan Gosling, who's in Blade Runner 2049, with Harrison Ford, who's in Star Wars A New Hope with Gary Fisher. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, yeah, so I suppose the, the joint winners this week then are uh, mm-hmm. Casey, Casey and Ben with two steppers. There's a there's a, a case of Mr. Ben DVDs. No. <laughs> you can deal with that. I'll, 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 I I won't get involved in that. That sounds like a promise that won't be filled or acted upon. <laughs> yeah. To me. Um, so the ultra mega super turbo Arkansas was uh, to get through all of the cast of Friends in as few steps as possible, and Ben kicked the door off the KK saloon and came in with an eleven stepper. <clears throat> so. I didn't even know if this was possible. So you've got Matt LeBlanc was in Charlie's Angels' Phil Throttle with Justin Theroux, who was in Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion with Lisa Kudrow, who was in Dr. Doolittle 2 with Jamie Kennedy, who was in Scream with Courtney Cox, who was in Ace Ventura Pet Detective with Jim Carrey, who was in Bruce Almighty with Jennifer Aniston, who was in The Thin Pink Line. That film looks absolute shit by the way when i read up on it because i didn't even know if it was real with david schwimmer who was in john carter with taylor kitsch who was in snakes on a plane with samuel L. jackson who was in pulp fiction with rosanna arquette who was in the whole nine yards with matthew perry david schwimmer is he <laughs> yes. in, in john carter i, I don't know i don't I have... remember that I mean, do you want to do a quick check? I mean, if you question- I, mean, I can, yeah. I mean, I don't want to. I mean, <laughs> I it's impressive. Whatever happens, but I don't remember him being in it. I feel like I should have remembered. Oh, I bet a- he was one of the aliens. It was like a kind of motion capture thing, actually. That's why I don't remember him. Anyway, um, yeah. Jennifer Jennifer Anderson being in in the Think Pin Line with David Think Pink Line with David Schwimmer. You know, it's a cameo where they both look at each other and kind of half recognize each other oh, and yeah. shake their heads and move on. Oh my god! You know, after that scene, the director didn't say cut. He said, "Kick the stool away from under me." <laughs> so, um, yeah. So now we get onto the the bread and butter, the meat and potatoes, the uh, the bow and o of the podcast, the movies. Now, mine are pretty. It's a pretty random selection from from different uh, episodes of the last few weeks of my life in hotels and so on. I believe, Rupert, that once again, it's one of my favorite things. You have a theme, don't you? I do. It's the theme of Jaws, uh, a resplendent series of films made between 1975 and whenever it was, what, 89, something like that. The fact that you literally can't even be bothered to finish that sentence introducing your own sequence of movies tells me all I need to know. It must have been earlier than, uh, maybe, I don't know. I don't, I'm just the, re, the reason I'm not quite sure when the last one was made because there's a joke in Back to the Future 2 where he obviously goes to the future 2015 and it's in Jaws 20s on at the cinema and I think if they'd seen Jaws 4 The Revenge they would not have predicted that that series would go on for another 16 films put it that way there's a way to there's an actual sort of uh, what's the word like a like a litmus test to check whether this Jaws sequel is better than the Howling sequel, and that is, is Jimmy Nail in Jaws 2? He's not, actually. So, oh. yeah. 
So does that mean it's film, as far as I'm concerned? (laughs) Yeah, just a sequence of images just jammed together childishly. Um, Have you literally just got the four Jaws films, or did you watch anything else? I watched uh, I watched both of the um, Timothy Dalton James Bond films as well. Thank God. And Um, and one one more special one just for you. Oh, nice. Well, shall I kick off then? Yep. Let's kick this all away. Okay, so <laughs> so I watched 1408, the 2007 psychological horror film based on Stephen King's short story of the same name, starring John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson. Yes. The, the, there's a little story behind this because my one of my oldest friend's email addresses involves 1408. And so I thought he's obviously a huge fan of, of this film. And the other day when I spoke to him, I said, oh, the other day I watched 1408. And he said, what's that? And I said it. The horror film you really like is part of your email address. And he said, Britt, that's my birthday. <laughs> Which is something you think I would have picked up on over the last 20 years. But um, <clears throat> it turns out it's a pretty decent film. So this is one that totally slipped me by. And it stars John Cusack, whom I fancy. Uh, and he plays a uh, Michael Enslin, who is a, a very cynical um, author who was estranged from his wife after the death of his daughter. And he at the start of the film, we're led to believe he goes around sort of debunking uh, in his books, you know, like the the hundred most haunted hotels, the hundred most mm-hmm. haunted graveyards, the hundred most haunted toilets. Um, he he goes around debunking them. Well, we believe it's just out of pure cynicism, but it's it's sort of actually a quite sad and desperate attempt to find out if there is some sort of afterlife. So he has hope for the soul of his daughter, who's passed away due to an unspecified illness, and. He gets a postcard from this uh, from this hotel, supposedly um, called the I forgot. I think it's called the Dolphin Hotel somewhere mm. in New York. <clears throat> and he goes back there and he's, he wants to stay in room 1408, but he's told he can't. It's always booked up. And his lawyer finds this weird loophole that means you if, if his room, if room is usable. Oh, he's told it's unavailable. Sorry, not booked. There's some weird law that says if a room is is available, you can ask to stay in it and they can't stop you and samuel jackson really tries to sort of uh, get him to not do it by bribing him with like this really expensive brandy and money and like a free stay in the hotel and he ends up staying in this room and it is haunted rupert <laughs> he, really, he steps in the door the moment the door shuts he, he thinks yeah ooh, a bit of a misstep here on my behalf i think um and yeah throughout the film he sort of uh, I, I don't want to spoil it too much, but he, he goes uh, goes through these uh, sort of certain stages and the room just really takes him on a ride. And there's just something really Twilight Zoney about it um, that, that really gripped me. And I think John Cusack is a really good everyman. So oh, yeah. he's he's when he's thrown in this room, uh, there was a point halfway through when it's really kicking off and Faye said to me, can you imagine anyone else playing this role? And I said, I can imagine Nicolas Cage doing this. It's that kind of performance. Um, yes. But but I think what makes him more grounded is that John Cusack is just this sort of, he's really flippant and cynical and wearing about 40 shirts as well for some reason in this film. And uh, and as, as he as he sort of unravels, you can believe it's due to all of this, this pent-up grief that is being released in this very unusual way. Um, it's basically him in a room. That, uh, and I think it's a testament to the, to, to how sort of strongest performances that I just thought, yeah, I could watch that again. I know I'm going to watch that again in less than two years. You know, I'm going to be in the mood for it. It's that film that you get in the mood for. Um, yes. The one thing I will say is you'll, you'll be 
more au fait with this. This is 2007. And there is a weird, I don't know if it was a stylistic choice. It is a weird filter. It makes everything look sort of yellowy gold. I don't know if there was something going on at that time mm. in cinema, but it's, it's, it's weird. It makes everything just look sort of slightly washed out. Um, mm. So I, I don't know if that was a, <clears throat> that was sort of a trend, but not mm. as bad as that bloody, was it fear.com where everything just looked like just throwing a lot of gravy browning over the film um yeah so it's just it's a really good generic thriller if that makes sense just you check yes. it on you sit through it think i enjoyed that i'll watch that again um i saw it at the cinema yeah. when it came out it didn't have much of an impact on me i don't think but i may have to watch oh, really? it again hmm um, I think I think it is one of those films that I suppose when you go to the cinema you have certain expectations. Um, I think when you just awesome. randomly put something on with no nothing, no preconceptions of it, apart from you know I'm in the mood for this genre and I like this man, then yeah, it, yeah, I, it was kind of like Lockout that really worked for me watching it years on, you know, just in the mood for a silly action film. So this is kind of the Lockout of this episode for me in that it, it's a film that I know I'll watch again. Yeah. I, yeah, it, it does sound like quite appealing, actually. I, maybe the problem is is that I just expect a Stephen King adaptation set in a hotel to be The Shining. But I've got to accept that that's not always going to be the case. Which is, <laughs> there which are is other in, stories. Which is interesting, because what you should have expected a Stephen King adaptation to be was total and utter irredeemable shit, like most of them are. You, well, that's what yeah, you're, that's, that's, they do come as yeah. same baggage. You know? yeah. the, the Cell, by the way, also starring with Samuel L. Jackson and John Cusack, is hands down one of the top five worst films I've ever seen. So that is one you shouldn't watch. Oh my, it's unbelievably bad from start to finish. It's like a student film. Wow. That is impressive. I mean, I know Samuel L. Jackson isn't the most discerning about which, what scripts he says he has to, but... That's he's ob- he's ob- he's obviously as Peter Whalen acclaimed um one of the 88% of actors who can't pronounce the words this script isn't very good. <laughs> um right then. Uh let's start on Jaws, shall we? Yes, please. Start please. this journey. I got to say I've only ever seen the original. Okay. Well, that's good. I mean, uh, yes. All the Jaws films are on Prime at the moment, I think. I think Jaws, the original, might even be on Netflix as well. Anyway, yes, there's not sure what else there is really to say about it, to be honest. This is obviously, it was made in 1975 as Steven Spielberg's big break. He'd made um, films before that, and the previous year he'd made Sugarland Express, which is highly recommended. It's like a, it's a really cool little crime, crime caper with a young William Atherton. Uh, it's mm. really cool. It's a really neat little movie. Um, and obviously he'd made Jewel and stuff, but this, you know, Jaws was, well, they call it the birth of the summer blockbuster. I think possibly S- Star Wars might have done more in that regard. Can but either way, here this we are. Isn't gonna, this isn't going to be the only film linked to Peter Benchley this episode, by some no. miracle, by the way. Okay. Jaws 2, is that going to be? I just saw Jaws 5, so. Um. So, yes, it's based on the novel by Peter Benchley. Although I remember the novel being much more to do with the community and much less to do with the shark. But, yeah, here it's it's pretty much all about the shark. It's set in this affluent community um, called Amity, um, which it was filmed in Martha's Vineyard. So it's kind of like very, very picket fence and cats up trees kind of community. Um, and then Bruce the shark 
shows up and eats a bunch of people. So Chief Brody, played by Roy Scheider, sets off with a gruff shark hunter, played by Robert Shaw, and a young scientist, played by uh, Richard Dreyfuss, to go and kill the fish. So it's two films in one, which is cool. About halfway through, it, it, it like zooms in on the boat and you it's all about the dynamics between this those three men it's just good value for money as a movie apart from anything because like for the first hour or so you get like scary kills and local politics and all this community panic but then we also get this sort of alpha male action movie at the other end so that's cool and for me it the beauty of it is is, is its efficiency because the script just tells us everything we need to know. And when it doesn't, then you've got these really good performances to fill in the gaps. And crucially, we only see glimpses of the shark until like the, the final act, basically. And I think that's one of the reasons it still holds up is because you only see glimpses for most of the movie. And I can't remember who it was. Someone or other said that the best horror movies make us afraid of the real world and i think jaws could be the ultimate example of that in a way because i don't know if i if i'd never seen this movie maybe i would still be a little bit wary of the sea but when i'm swimming in the sea sort of thing but i know that there are shots in this film that flash in my mind when i'm swimming and it still freaks me out a little bit and i just i don't as far as shark movies go i'm not sure it's ever going to be bettered really because I don't think they're ever going to make something quite so visceral. And I mean, like... But you've seen Deep Blue Sea, haven't you? (laughs) Yes, I have seen Deep Blue Sea. And I've seen The Shallows. And I've seen The Meg. And, yeah, I mean, I suppose... Is is The Shallows the sequel to the film The Deep? (laughs) Or with Nick Nolte. (laughs) Yeah. That was was a disappointing movie, because I thought... I think that's Peter Pensley as well. Oh, really? I don't know. Is that true? I'll have to find out. Hey, Rupert, it's our podcast. Just say what you want, mate. Honestly. (laughs) (laughs) No one's got any access to any device that can fact check, so it's okay. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, like, that visceral aspect to to the original Jaws. Like, the death of Quint, spoiler alert, is just harrowing. It's totally disgusting, especially, by the way, when you watch it on Blu-ray. Um, because the sound when he's getting munched is disgusting. It's like real crunching bone and stuff. The movie was a PG when it came out on VHS. It's ridiculous. Even more shocking is the fact that in the film he's eaten by Roy Scheider. It's weird, isn't it? <laughs> a single bite. <laughs> a turn up for the books, really. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. So, so is that, have you have you got like? Is have you were you listening through headphones or was that just through like your normal speakers? You were still thinking, wow, that's a horrible sound. Normal speakers. I mean, I think a part of it is because I'm so used to watching stuff on streaming, and I like to point out that Jaws is on streaming. I just wanted to watch it on the Blu-ray, but it, mm. it, it makes you realise when you do watch a Blu-ray or a 4K um, disc that you you are missing quite a bit. Um, when, you, when it comes when you to stream. streaming because someone is so compressed especially when it comes to the sound and so it, there's definitely life left in the old beast yet yeah so yeah, yeah so Jaws is a good, good movie definitely recommended <laughs> um 
Well, I, I, yeah, I've, I've seen Jaws um, a, a long time ago. Uh, mm-hmm. It's one of those films that I never, I didn't, I kind of put it in the same headspace as like the, the Goonies and, mm-hmm. um, you know, Ghostbusters and those sort of things in that people really, really love Jaws. But I, I grew up and I saw it a few times, but it wasn't like a, a sort of cornerstone of my childhood. Yeah. But I do really like it. And I should sit down. Can I just say that? I remember you um, you said something really interesting because I know you watched this film a few years ago and we had a conversation about it. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned something about the mayor's cigarette that I found really interesting. And I can't remember what it was. The mayor's cigarette. The fact that he was smoking a fag in hospital. No, I think it's I think it's something to do with like he doesn't believe there's a shark, but then when he does believe it, then he smokes. Like he's carrying it around and playing with it or something. And there's a moment when he smokes, and it's like a key scene in the movie where yeah, it's like where he. Oh, that, was, that sounds like quite a good observation for me. But there is definitely uh, yes, there is a scene where that happens. Yes, and yeah. that's the that's the moment where he tips over into believing. Um, Believing Roy Scheider. And I mean, that sort of like detail is. It may not have been. In, it may have been in the script. I don't know. It may have been in the book. But it's the kind of thing that Spielberg would ensure is there. So you kind of pick up on it, even at a subconscious level. So very good stuff. Excellent work. <laughs> I, like, I, I, like will, I, like it. I will say yeah. that the series does not maintain that quality. <laughs> Well, there's no point listening to the rest of the podcast. I, think so. <laughs> I wonder if there is, is is a series that you'll go through at some point. You'll say, "Oh God, it just gets better and better." I mean, obviously, it's oh, not well, going to terminate it. Chucky, I would say. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, that, that's true. I wouldn't say it gets better and better. It gets up and down, but the last... like a manic depressive on a trampoline. <laughs> but yeah, that was such a, a brilliant experience. Like watching all those movies and seeing the way it's just re reconfigured itself. Uh, but they it basically maintain quality the whole way through, which is incredible, really. Through reinvention. Um, Jaws did not well, manage the same feat. Okay, so I'm going to keep the Peter Benchley line going unbelievably, because I didn't know you were watching Jaws until a few days ago. Mm-hmm. I watched The Island, not that one. Um, so this isn't the one with um, Scarlett Johansson and um, Ewan McGregor. None of that shit. This is The Island from 1980, starring Michael Caine and David Warner. This is the film that, as I was watching it, I read that Michael Caine doesn't even acknowledge it exists and doesn't talk about it in interviews. Uh, what? Hang on. So Michael Caine? So Michael yes. Caine. So hang yeah, on. Mike, he doesn't admit Mike, that this exists, and yet draws the revenge. He's quite happy to admit it exists. That should give you an idea of what I sat through. <laughs> I I don't know if you remember, but like, I watched... Um, what was it called? The the uh, bullet to Beijing last episode. Oh yeah, yeah. And and it dawned on me like how few um, Michael Caine uh, films I'd seen, and I thought I really need to like dive into it a little bit more. And this film is again, it's it was I think the the screenplay was written by Peter Benchley of Jaws fame and the deep fame uh, in 1979, and of course because of the Jaws and everything, they snapped the studio snapped this up. And said, this is just going to be another corker. And I don't think it was. Um, so it starts off and Michael Caine plays someone called Blair Maynard, who <clears throat> is, it says British born American journalist as a way of covering up that he makes no attempt at an American accent. And he's, he's, a, he's a journalist in New York and he's, he's sort of off screen wife and he's got his son for the weekend. And he is looking into the disappearances of boats and pleasure cruises, pleasure ships around the Bermuda Triangle. 
And at one point he says something like, oh, you, you don't to his boss, like, you don't think I need to investigate this, these disappearances, like down near Florida or whatever. And his boss mm. is like, no, it's just just whatever. It's just, you know, just ships getting lost at sea, people pissed or whatever. And he says, 600 boats have gone missing in three years. And I thought that Six. is a lot of boats, right? Oh, that is, 603 years. It's a, I, I, don't quote me on it, but I remember sitting up and thinking. 200 a year. That's four a week. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's so many boats have gone disappeared. It's something like that. It's a ridiculous amount. And I thought, yeah, you probably should have a little look down this. He was kicking around. Um, but what's odd is the first. So we're intercut with him with his son a little bit of banter it's quite a nice sort of a relationship between them at the start of the film you know the, the thing and he's driving down and it cuts from like renting a boat and talking to this uh, odd doctor and then blah blah blah, blah. <clears throat> and it's intercut with this like true british early 80s slasher horror stuff um okay. where it shows like people on boats you know uh, like young couples who obviously just completely minted and rented these boats for a bit of a piss up sort of thing smoking bags having a laugh and and them getting like hacked to death and garroted with like quite decent gory lingering special effects for the time, and I thought, oh my god, please, please. Um, and the cover of the film, by the way, is like a knife, a, a sort of dead zombie hand reaching out of the water by an island holding a knife near a boat. So I thought, oh, this is going to be a glorious undiscovered slasher movie, and I'm going to have to tell Rupert about this, and it's going to be film of the week. <clears throat> well, what actually happens? is that after about 20 minutes, Michael Caine and his son get clonked on the head when they're on their boat and they wake up and it's just a load of like almost comical pirates like who've lived for 300 years on this island sort of out of the eye of society. Um, it doesn't explain why they're immortal. Uh, they talk in a weird like pigeon French piracy sort of language that doesn't ring true and and the costumes are pretty silly they look kind of amdrammy mm. and 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 they it's and ed david warner who's the the leader of the pirates who is the most unusual looking man when he's got his top off it's like um it's like the michael jackson boyish body thing but like a concave chest so it's like are you a pirate captain or are you 15 with like an old man's face yeah um, it's gonna say he's always looked about 55 yeah I mean, this is 1980, and he looks, you know, a bit worse for it. But he, so the the plot, such as it is, is that David Warner wants to take um, Michael Caine's son as a sort of an heir to the, to his to take over the pirates. Whereas Michael Caine, because he's such a hunk, uh, is going to be used as breeding stock for the the sole woman they've got among these pirates, and just like, basically knock out a few more pirates. God, this sounds like but, a Doug McClure film. But yeah, but what happens is like all that, all that sort of father son bonding nicely filmed floridian uh, cinematography combined with this dirty nighttime boat slasher stuff just gets thrown out the window and then it's just like an hour that feels like two hours of michael Caine with like this dead set face um like he's realized how bad the film he's got himself into and, and if they're just filming his face as it dawns on him as he just sort of like basically tries to escape and then gets taken back to the same. It feels like he tries to escape about 40,000 times. Like he'll just run off and they'll catch him, bring him back and then they'll show them washing a stream. Then he'll run off and they'll bring him back and then they'll hang some clothes up. And it's like, God, nothing's happening. Um, and the way that the film like wraps itself up, I just thought this, this film 
it was it was literally like they had 10 pages of script and then they said right it's filming tomorrow so we're gonna have to knock something up because it's just people like wandering through foliage having like um sort of and sort of unending conversations about nothing it's it just all of the mystery and all the intrigue just completely drains out of it after the 15 minute mark and it just never gets it back and when it finished i thought yeah that is not a cult classic that's that had the beginnings of something and it just totally lost it so i'm just looking now because i didn't think to look at this but michael ritchie the director mm. he passed away passed away in 2001 I saw a few, I was just flicking through then. He directed a lot of films like Fletch Lives and Fletch. Uh, and so he's obviously got like an, uh, Cops and Robertsons, Jack Palance, obviously. He had like an eye for comedy. But this is played weirdly straight, but with, it, it's like they made the clothes and wrote the dialogue for a comedy and then decided it was like a dark drama, but mm. didn't change anything about it apart from the soundtrack. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a real swing and a miss, this one. Uh, so that's the island, not that one. I take it that's on Prime. Rupert, you say that it's like, can you see my notes? Have you got a little camera in here or something? <laughs> yes, it is on Prime. And it suggested it for me, Brit, you'll like this. And I'm kind of glad I watched this, so I got to talk about it, but I wouldn't say I liked it. At least you got to see another <laughs> Michael Caine movie. Yes, um, and I, I will watch a few more because um, he's, I want to watch Dress to Kill. Of course. Um, Right, Jaws two then, rather <laughs> uninspiring name. Double brass tax. <laughs> so this has one of the same writers uh, as the original, and mostly the same cast. Well, minus Richard Dreyfus and Robert Shaw. It's uh, directed by Jeanot Svark, who went on to make Supergirl and Santa Claus the movie. Um, and the production of this sounds as like as much of a nightmare as the original to be honest um the other writer by the way on this one is howard sackler whose name i recognized and it's because he wrote kubrick's first two movies ah not that it really means much but there we go um so in short it's effectively the first film transmogrified with a teen slasher there's even a bit where they disfigure the shark like he's a kind of a slasher killer um i should point out though that this was what 78 so it it was probably just before the slasher case really kicked off but i suppose it was just getting into swing with halloween and stuff anyway so yeah it was made like three years after the first film but the kids seem to have aged like at least twice that um it's very odd and that will be a running theme and the problem is inevitably the script because it just it just is all that like efficiency and economy of the original and the kind of mythic quality to it it's just all lost it's got some really dumb script moments like there's a scene where where this boat explodes and roy scheider instantly it just assumes it's a shark and it's like exploded though didn't it i mean that's a completely different thing to a shark attack isn't it really if a sh- if a boat explodes you don't think oh that's got that's probably a shark attack um all, <laughs> and it's so desperate to kind of relive the beats of the original that the mayor who we discussed earlier smoking the fag the mayor in this one 
When Roy Scheider comes to him about there being, yes, another shark, the mayor just reacts exactly as he did in the original, with complete scepticism. Despite the events of the original having occurred and clearly definitely happened, he's just like, he's exactly the same as he was in the original. He's just like reset. And, and yeah, there's, uh, there's some really, really clumsy foreshadowing as well. Um, I mean, like about a third of the way through, it's very obvious how they're going to kill a shark because it's just really, really laboured and heavy-handed. Um, there is one legitimately great scene, I think, which is oh, where, cool. which involves Chief Brody in the shark tower. Um, so he's kind of looking across the beach for the shark, basically, that he imagines is there. And there's loads of like, it it feels very Spielbergian because there's a lot of like character stuff going on on the on the beach uh, and yet at the same time he's cutting back to Roy Scheider who's getting progressively more nervous up on the uh, shark tower and then it culminates in this really nasty bit of audience manipulation I thought that's that was a good scene that would that wouldn't feel out of place in the original and and actually the core of the characterization in this one is pretty decent like the idea of Chief Brody being traumatized and paranoid is pretty cool because then he could possibly just be acting crazy and paranoid, not not thinking straight sort of thing. The problem is the filmmakers thought it would be necessary to show the full shark from the start of the movie. So obviously there's no room for any ambiguity. It's not like you might think, oh, is he, is it real or not? No. Well, you know it because you've just seen the shark in all its glory. Um, there are some vaguely thrilling bits in the final act of the movie where the kids kind of go out to sea or the teenagers go out to sea on their boats. Um, but I found it very hard to care when the kids were pretty much, well, they're either extremely irritating or just interchangeable. And they, they just didn't have the character dynamics of the trio of the original. So it was desperately missing a bit of Dreyfus and sure. Um, but I will say it is fairly well made. I mean, it certainly looks of a piece with the original and it does at least understand that kind of like that like grand prehistoric horror of the shark i mean it's not it's not yet a mockery of the original it's just a bit of a clunky rehash really so not completely without merit and at least scheider's still there so with rose scheider and richard dreyfus um i I, I can't bring myself to call him Dreyfus, and I know that's his name, but I, I don't know. I've done it for so long, I'm going to say Dreyfus. He's yeah. not going to hear this. Um, yeah, just what would you say they're sort of seminal films? Because they seem to be actors that have always been there. Mm. And like when I think of Richard Dreyfus, I think of, you know, Mr. Holland's Opus and uh, obviously Jaws and the Stakeout movies. But what is it, what is it about Roy What would you say are the key films? Well, for Dreyfus, I, I think Close Encounters is pretty seminal. Like, that's a pretty key movie for him, I'd say. Um, Scheider is a bit of a different one, isn't he? Because he... I, things, I The first film I saw him in was Jaws, so I saw him as this kind of, like, very... Um, kind of... This very upstanding moral hero. But then, actually, a lot of his roles were kind of... Been pretty nasty like 70s movies like French Connection and like Marathon Man and stuff like that. Have you seen Marathon Man? Um, but anyway, yeah, like the, the French Connection certainly. 
and um and so that's kind of what I, how i think of him and like and in stuff like sorcerer you know the william freakin movie nearly he's again pretty gritty you know and mm. he's got this kind of like leathery skin and he just looks like he's just really like hewn from stone and he's he's a cool he's a very cool actor and I'd like to check out more of his stuff, although I don't know what else there is to really watch. I mean, I'm sure he was in his fair share of crap as well. <laughs> the Punisher. I think that um, there must have been a time, because a lot of those men looked leathery back then. It must have been like, right, mum, I'm going to make my fortune in L.A., in the L.A. heat, in, in Hollywood. I'm off. And they're like, do you want to take any sun cream? <laughs> I think you'll find <laughs> that I won't look 40 in two weeks. Thank you very much. Um <laughs> Yeah, and also Robert Shaw was he in some westerns? Um, I'm not sure what he was. I mean, he was one of the Bond villains, wasn't he? <clears throat> was he? Um, oh, my my Bond knowledge isn't. Um, although you are covering the two Timothy Dalton films, which are my mother's. He, she believes he's the best Bond. That's fair enough. I mean, it's and I'm, not ridiculous. Um, <laughs> well, I suppose Shida was in 2010 as. Not a space odyssey. What was it called? It had a subtitle, didn't it? It was like 2010. Uh, the year we make contact or something like that. Anyway. I think it's 2010. Kubrick's Frank Boft. <laughs> um, but yes, but yeah, Marathon Man, Sorcerer. That's kind of what I think of. Roy Scheider and and um, French Connection. But then, I think he's it will forever be. Jaws will forever be his kind of his movie. I can't imagine another actor playing it, even though I'm sure there were other actors who were up for that role. French Connection 2, of course, ending with your infamous quote that it is a knackered Gene Hackman slowly jogging alongside a slow moving yacht. That is the, that's the kind of that action packed new month that we all crave. We watch all these the uh, high paced movies. Um, yeah, I've got. I want to talk about a film. I, I stayed in a hotel in Bristol a couple of weeks ago, and I, I think we've talked a lot about in this podcast about when you stay in a hotel, how much it's we love just having to watch whatever's on TV, <laughs> putting putting up with the adverts and just getting on. And I know you've seen Shop Girl three times on the trot in a hotel. <laughs> yes. um, uh, well, I was I was with Faye in a hotel, and Sunny just settled down, and uh, I said, right, this is my favourite part. I'm just going to put the TV on, and we'll, we'll flick through the channels. Don't even know what channels are going to be available. And I couldn't even plug in my uh, the Super Nintendo Mini I'd taken because the HDMI port was completely out of reach. Thank you, Clayton Bristol. So we were totally just stuck with whatever was on TV. And she went, yeah, I'm bang up for it. Poured a glass of wine each. I turned the TV on, and I shit you not, on 5 Action, Action 5, don't even know what channel that is, The Running Man had just started. Oh <laughs> and I said, Faye, have you watched this? And she said, no. And then I didn't look at her again for the next two and a half hours. Uh, <laughs> it was Even though the movie's only 80 minutes. <laughs> because the adverts took up the rest of the time. Um, <laughs> So just one of the things, as you were talking then, as I was getting this up on Wikipedia, I didn't know this. And I know my brother listens to this podcast. Hello, Transvaal. Um, Paul Michael Glazer directed Running Man, who played Starsky and Starsky and Hutch in the 70s. Blimey. Did you know? I didn't know that at all. 
I was not aware of that, no. No. Paul Michael Gray, the name rings the bell, but so Starsky directed The Runner Man. When is I it, see him next, I have to give him a high five. Was it written by Stephen E. D'Souza? Yes, it was, who also wrote <laughs> Commando, if memory serves. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I so, think he's, hasn't he got a story credit on Die Hard? I'm just imagining that. Am I just imagining that? Uh, he has, yeah, he's, he's mentioned on Die Hard. Mm-hmm. And Hudson Hawk. And Ricoch- Ricochet by Russell Mulcahy of Highlander fame. Mm-hmm. Rick- Ricochet starring Denzel Washington, John Lithgow, Ice-T and Kevin Pollock. Whew. Whew. I, mm. I actually sl- I slumped my shoulders reading that out. Um, so, yeah, The Running Man. Oh, th- this is a film I'm pretty sure everyone's familiar with. I just uh, I just had to mention it. It's uh, 1987 film starring... Um, uh, Richard Dawson, Maria Conchita, Alonso, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Yafikot, and Jesse Ventura. Um, I, I don't even feel like I need to. This seems like just a film that everyone knows. But the, it, the, the plot is that Arnold Schwarzenegger, as Ben Richards, gets framed for a crime and gets taken into this game, The Running Man, which is televised in the future. And he has to run for his life and effectively get hunted down by runners who are the basically the bad guys. And what I was obviously... Now that I do this podcast, when I watch this film, when I watch films now that I've seen before, I try to I try to focus on on the new and see if I can pick up something that I wouldn't have noticed before. Um, this was a film that was written by um, Stephen King under his Richard Bachman pseudonym to see if he could get a film made, you know, or get get books released, mm. n- not under his own name as a challenge. And obviously, it's good. And this film was like middlingly re- received, but watching it now, I just I don't know. I, I'm obviously completely blinkered with nostalgia, but but there's something so video gamey about it that mm-hmm. it really appeals to me. It's just effectively a couple of guys thrown into this, you know, this um, completely dystopian world trying to survive whilst they're being hunted down by bosses, effectively. And when you dive into the the IMDb sort of trivia of the whole thing, it's astonishing how much there is about that. You know, the guy who played. Um, Dynamo dying like just after the film was made and uh, Professor Sub-Zero actually being like an ex-wrestler. All this stuff, it all sort of ties into each other. Mm. And yeah, I just, I was watching it and I I just thought, God, this feels like a really like dark and solid film. It it tickles me how, how much, like when it shows Arnold Schwarzenegger and like what he did, they call him the Butcher of Bakersfield and how he just mowed down all the civilians. And it cuts, and it's just clearly just like professionally filmed footage inside a helicopter, and it shows it twice, and um, and and just shows footage in the film in the background before it's actually happened. Mm-hmm. They, like if it's one of those films that's quite rewarding to to rewatch because you notice things in the background. Yeah, Jesse Jesse Ventura just disappears from this film. I, I didn't realize because there's that. There's a scene where they say they're running out of you know runners effectively, and they get fireball in their last years losers and say right we're gonna need Jesse in there to kick some ass, and then he says I don't need all this all this shit just get me in there and he's got all that robot stuff on if you remember and he's yes, like yes, stupid yes. tin that's literally the last time you see him because after that it's um it, it's just footage they've edited to make out that Arnie's dead spoiler alert. And then they can just kill them off screen. But then, um, yeah, so he just literally disappears from the movie. And he and he's a genius screen presence as well, mm-hmm. Jesse Ventura, which is a real shame. It would have been cool to have an actual showdown. But 
Yeah, you've got um, Frank Zappa's son is in there, and you've got Mick Fleetwood referencing his actual real-life self as the drummer of Fleetwood Mac in there for no reason at all. I don't even know if he was in any of the films. And it's just one of those films that if you if you are an Arnie fan like myself and you just watch it a lot, just just watch it. And as you're watching it, just because you know what's going to happen, just flick through the IMDb you know trivia because it, you you forget how many links and connections there are and how much fun it actually is. I know yeah. Arnie always looks back at this and says, oh, you know, Paul Michael Glazer was like a TV actor, so he came out and made it look like a TV movie. But there's so many, like, funny lines, key scenes, and ridiculous moments and sound effects that it feels a very rewarding film to rewatch. So It if kind you of doesn't matter if it does look like a TV movie anyway, because it is about a TV show. So it yeah. kind of has a, it's not meant to be kind of gritty and uh, like on location in the same way like Predator is or something like that. It's meant to look very larger than life and fake, isn't it? And I think yeah. what I like about The Running Man is that it wouldn't really, wouldn't really work today. I suppose today you've got the equivalent would be something like The Hunger Games or something, but it you wouldn't be able to have that same... It captures a moment in the 80s, basically, where like where game show culture is so massive sort of thing. Mm. And either, uh, well, I suppose there's a boom in TV channels and stuff. It's just vying for people's attention. And so I suppose it does is quite prescient about reality TV. But I think it really captures like 80s commercialism in the same way that like Robocop does so well and stuff. It just captures that Reaganite excess so beautifully. Yeah. And obviously Richard Dawson, I don't know what show he used to be on, but he used to host an actual um, mm. TV show. I don't know what it was. But um, what was I going to say? There was You made a point there. Uh, yeah, it's you were saying that it actually is being remade and directed by Edgar Wright. Yeah. Well, I suppose, yeah, I can imagine that. I'm not just not sure what angle they kind of go at it from. Yeah, because I mean, I mean I, I, they kind of ditch the whole commercialism satire stuff and went for the the kind of ethical angle, and it wasn't nearly as interesting. So, and yeah, know. Joel Kinnaman was in it, and so I enjoyed yeah, because I got to look oh, at Joel. I, I liked it more than some, but yes, it's uh, jo- Joel. I'm reliable Kinnaman, <laughs> and yeah, and I suppose I mean Total Recall that was you know not ideal, but then yeah, it's I'm always I'm always up for you know. I'm always up to see where they go with it. And Edgar Wright's, you know, a pretty reliable pair of hands, so it'd be interesting to see what happens. Yes, yeah, I'd say, yeah, it'd be interesting. Uh, okay, where can we, see, well, we can see that at some <laughs> random hotel in Bristol, I suppose. <laughs> the Clayton Hotel. Okay. Uh, at, uh, on Action 5 or 5 yeah. Action. Room 1408. Sounds good, okay. Well, that would be amazing. Um, specifically, it's the only one showing Running Man. Um, Jaws 3D, otherwise known as Jaws 3, but it definitely was 3D. The Good. third dimension is terror, apparently. Did you? Wow! Well, did you watch? Did you watch it with like 3D glasses on a VHS? Oh, I wish. I wish. I wonder if there is an actual legit 3D version you can watch now. Anyway, because I don't think it's going to be coming out to the cinema anytime soon. But yes, uh, this film does not star any of the previous stars. Although it does have Dennis Quaid, Leah Thompson, and Louis Gossett Jr. in it, so there is that. 
Um, this one is set in this SeaWorld theme park. This top, uh, this sort of cutting edge SeaWorld theme park. Not clear whether it's going to be in the future or not. Don't really care. Anyway, so this SeaWorld, a shark sneaks in. <laughs> um, Louis Gossett Jr. is running the park and this shark sneaks in. Um, Dennis Quaid uh, works there. He He's... He's playing uh, one of Chief Brody's sons. Think about that. Dennis Quaid is playing Chief Brody's son. We'll come back to that. And the <laughs> other Brody kid is in it too, right? So anyway, they discover this shark, which is snuck in, and they catch it so they can use it as an exhibit. Uh, I mean, they say they shouldn't do that, you know, but Louis Gossett Jr. is like, no, no, no. Let's get this. will get the crowds in. But of course, all that greed just ends up killing the shark. And the mummy shark is not happy. So she's going to come on the rampage. So like in that setup, we have like the kind of greed being the thing that it attracts the chaos. There's just like we were talking about, there's a bit of a chance of some kind of classic 80s capitalism satire, but totally just (laughs) they completely circumvent that opportunity. It was made in 1983. So Right. So 1983, that's five years after part two, right? The year of my birth. Again, a weird amount of time has passed, it would seem, since the last film. Because in five years, the kids have gone from like age 10 and 16 to two men just in their 30s. It's ridiculous. I don't know what (laughs) is happening with the um, chronology of these films. Anyway, and the younger brother, not the Dennis Quaid one, the younger one, He's introduced at the start of the movie and then written out for it, out of it for the best part of an hour. It's really odd. So Dennis Quaid is at the dead heat effect <laughs> with, <laughs> with Joe Piscopo. What a movie. Um, is that the one where he keeps looking at the camera? He keeps looking up at the lightning break. That was it. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Possibly the boom mic. Um, so, yeah, Dennis Quaid apparently was completely whacked on cocaine the entire shoot. Which may explain his performance in this because he is constantly totally wired. Um, and there's like this one scene where he's having this serious conversation with his girlfriend and he, he's so energized, he literally just interrupts her and they mess up the take clearly. And yet they just kept it in. It's like, let's not even try and get Dennis to do this again because he's never going to get there. So, um, in terms of the aesthetics, it looks horrible, this movie, because. M- because of the remnants of that 3D effect, everything looks just a bit fuzzy. And some of the special effects, ooh, wow, 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 wow. Like, there's some really basic superimposing here. And, and the lighting on the objects and the backgrounds is just totally out of whack. And there's the the kind of sea world, underwater sea world facility itself. That The model work is no better than something like Logan's Run, which is over 10 years earlier. There's loads of tedious underwater action, really murky and slow and dark, and some oh, shocking that can editing. really that can really drag films down. Underwater mm. sequences where it's just bubbles and thrashing. Oh, it's just it. constant. It's, it's basically like early, um, what's the word? Early kind of like shaky cam stuff. Yeah, any film where they it, like they go underwater, my heart just sinks. Same as any game where it's like an underwater sequence. Oh God, this is going to be tedious now, isn't it? Everything's going to be slower and darker. <laughs> That's all it is. There's one vaguely amusing character, like this pompous English 
scientist guy called Fitzroyce. But and he's got this kind of comedy cockney assistant. But it is a bit of a sign of how far the franchise has fallen by this point because it's just become a pantomime really. And the shark itself, although it, it never really truly acted like a shark anyway, but in this one it it actively behaves like a slasher villain. Like it teases its prey, it prods them, it torments them, it even sort of breaks down doors behind them, and it roars like a lion. It is ridiculous. So again, the actual overall concept isn't that terrible, like a kind of Westworld meets Jaws, but then it's just so badly written and directed and edited and acted. And of course, you know, you'd only have to wait another ten years before Spielberg made Jurassic Park, so um, yes, terrible. There's one scene in this, right, which is meant to be it's part of the, like the climactic sequence, the big dramatic climactic sequence where a bunch of tourists are trapped in this underwater vestibule, which is which is letting in water. So you're thinking, oh, OK, you know, it's a race against time. But one of the characters, one of the people who works there immediately explains that this vestibule, it can no longer let any more water in. So uh, so they're safe. So so basically it keeps cutting back to this room and they and of course the water isn't rising because they are safe and we've been told they're safe so it keeps cutting back as if it's like some tension but it's like well we already know they're safe so that's just it's just no threat here is it what are they doing just smoking fags and hanging about well, just is like it? They're, they're kind of screaming and panicking and stuff but it's like well everything's fine like there's no i mean it might go over your ankles but anyway then there's one really weirdly grisly scene where someone is swallowed whole and we get the view from inside the shark's mouth as this person is like gradually munched to death it's really gross the final sequence is so undramatic there's there's a moment when they're like they're watching from the control room and they're watching the shark smash down this gate really really slowly and then they only warn the divers in the water once the gate is broken they're like suddenly panicking and saying, oh, he's got through the gate. It's like, well, you could have told us that. It's bashing down the gate. How about that? Uh, yeah, it's total junk. But I'd say not completely without his amusements, just because of the cast, really. I mean, even those who aren't on drugs in this, they it's like they don't seem to know what film they're in. So the performances are so disjointed. <laughs> it's um, possibly worth it just for that aspect but my god it's a it's a real fall even from number two we were talking about this i mean you haven't even got the jaws four which is the michael Caine one yet um <laughs> but but i remember um, we were talking before in a previous episode about how you don't realize how good casting is because it's just mm. it just work it just works yeah uh, and like you say it's it's when you're watching a film and then you see another actor acting like they're in something else i always go back to maniac cop 2 with um robert darvey who mm-hmm. doesn't seem to think he's in an 80s slasher and thinks he's in like some 40s noir um <laughs> It's like in his head, there's an imaginary jazz soundtrack wherever he goes with muted trumpet. But it, it's is it in this? Is it just like no one knows what's going they're on? Just, they're just all all the performances seem kind of pitched differently. You know what you know what I mean? Like mm. you know when s- certain performances just stand out, the person <clears throat> just didn't kind of get the memo. It's like no one got the memo here at all. They're just all over the shop, and. That kind of makes it vaguely compelling. And then you've got, like I mentioned, like those scenes where someone will just like literally mess up the take. And it's like, OK, it's weird, slightly off kilter. So there's a bit of that. So you've got that that kind of it's 
sort of in the so bad it's good territory, I suppose. If it weren't, I think, I think if it didn't have so much underwater crap in it, then it, it would be a lot more enjoyable. Underwater crap in a George <laughs> film. <laughs> uh, there, there really aren't many good underwater like action movies when you think about it. I mean, you've got The a- Abyss. Apart from Underwater, which is really good. Oh, cool. But is that actually... They're in a facility underwater, right? I mean, do yes. they swim around a bit? Hang what on now, it? right? You just said, Brit... Are there any good films underwater? And I said, yes, there's a really good one called Underwater, where they're in a facility underwater. And you're like, but are they actually underwater? What, as in, like, do they hold their breath and go under with a snorkel? Like, yes, there's water that's on the their skin. That's so you're saying, issue. no, 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 your question is, are there any good films where people are underwater and water is touching their skin? <laughs> yes. They have to have actual contact with water. Type that into Netflix. I'm looking for a horror <laughs> where people are underwater, but da, 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 but water's touching their skin underwater. They're not just in a it facility. Can't just be set in a facility because, underwater. Because, I want I want contact with because quite often liquid. when they when they're in a facility underwater, it can also just be set in a space station, can't it? They they space can't touch their skin, but water must touch their skin. You know, um, Netflix would find a loophole as well. So there'd be like one scene where a character like washes their hands. And it's like, that doesn't count. <laughs> um, in, in the water, by the way, yeah, there are scenes where water touches skin. So you'll be happy with that, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a good question. Uh, if you want to email us at themenwhotalkatoutlook.com. <laughs> Underwater films <laughs> where skin touches water and they're good. Bloody hell. I hope I never say that again. Specific question, isn't it? Yeah, listen to the men who talk. They've got really, really specific subgenres in what they're looking for their audience to discover. Um, so it's almost a good, so bad it's good film, apart from all the underwater shit <laughs> in yes. a Jaws film. Right. Pretty much, yeah. Glad we cleared that up. Um, I also, in the same hotel, uh, I watched... Um, <laughs> that was Europe at three times yeah. that I watched The Running Man in the next day we were getting ready f- f- to breakfast and I thought well, I'll just put on TV, boom don't even know what channel it was, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels this is a brief one because I know you've covered this recently but I, I know that you um, you mentioned before I just wanted to sort of rehash this because I know you've covered this relatively recently in the, the last ten episodes or so but with Dirty Rotten Scoundrels I have to say that you said the laughs that are there are quite spaced apart. So it's like, it's funny, but you know, you're kind of waiting for the next sort of gag to come along. I would say that when the jokes happen, they really land. And I found myself watching it and they like knowing the film, like knowing the scene where he whips his legs and when he claims he can't walk and then and she walks in, he's just standing up dancing and he's like, ah, but all, what I loved in this, what I what because I was watching this, obviously, with a sort of slightly critical eye. What I noticed this time watching this film is how much of like an actual horrible little bastard that Steve Martin is and how kind of, you know, how Michael Caine is sort of um, a good thief sort of thing. Good thief, yeah. by the way, with Nick Nolte, one of the best films ever made. Uh, but what tickled me in this was, I think. 
the mood I was in watching this film, things that made me laugh this time weren't the big set pieces, the big comedic set pieces. It was what I'll call the dawning realization faces mm. where she'll say, oh, this is like when they both pretend to be other people. And um, I've forgotten her name. The actress who plays the fairy in. Is it Bob Harris? Oh, who is the who is the sorry, I'm I'm cheating you. Oh, oh, wow. She's actually died. Mm. Glenn Headley. Who was in Dirt Rotten Scoundrels and, and Mr. Holland's Opus? Oh wow, she died a few years ago. I didn't know. Um, who plays the sort of third, the, the focus of their attention? You know, they're trying to sort of vie for attentions and so on. When she's introducing them and they're playing different characters, what, the way it lingers on what, on either Michael Caine's face or Steve Martin's face, and they realise that they've been outwitted by the other swindler, mm. and and the eyes widen and they realise they have to kind of work on the moment to sort of say ah yes i know this person because mm-hmm. and then like make up a backstory i was really enjoying those this time around yeah um so yeah just just i know you said you've covered it recently i just want to say that i think i liked it a little bit more than you because uh the the, the jokes are the big set pieces are, are quite far apart but i think there's enough in there to keep me hooked throughout um and also it it feels weirdly light-hearted and it's it's set it's a very pretty setting, if you know what I mean. Yeah. There's always like a lot to enjoy in the visuals. But yeah. um, oh, what was I going to say? But well, I it think with re- a film like that, perhaps the spacing between the kind of set pieces is forgivable because so much of the humour depends on the convoluted part, plot. So it's, it needs that plotting, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah I did actually read up about it. Not read up about it, but I was I was um, saw something on Twitter about someone saying you should watch Sleuth. Yes. Uh, with Mike and I, I do feel like I need to watch that if it's streaming anywhere. But mm. this was the, the last thing I want to say about Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Was it, it's been remade apparently as The Hustle starring Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson. Yes, I heard <clears> this. And I'm up for this, like with sorry, I'm gonna cough. <coughs> like with the Ghostbusters all female remix. I think you, if you do it with like an all black, all female cast, whatever, it breaks the taboo. And then the next time they do whatever, it's not a big thing. It's just mm. a, a, a film. I totally with that. But um, I want to know if this is good because I've never seen the Marlon Brand David Niven original. Right. Um, but I didn't know if the Hustler was good because I I said to Faye because she really enjoyed Dirty Run Scandal. She'd never seen it before, and I said, oh, they've they've remade it as the Hustle with like Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson, who she both liked. She likes both of them. Yeah. But I didn't know if it was good, so I didn't know if you'd seen it. I've not seen it. My wife has seen it, and she mm-hmm. did not think it was good. But, okay. Uh, and she's got no particular attachment to the original, so I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I would say it's probably a yeah, it's a good thing, isn't it? Because if she's got no attachment to the original, she said that well, that was just crap. Then yeah. if someone does like the original is watching this for that for the, for that reason for like a different take on it, and it's crap, then well, yeah, I, I well, I, I've heard it's not particularly good, but I mean, I can see how it could work, I suppose, because you've got two quite different styles of actor alongside each other and that's kind of what worked with steve martin and michael kane wasn't it quite different opposing styles so and that that can work very well in comedy as we saw in the other guys with will ferrell and mark Wahlberg, and as we also saw for decades and decades with tommy cannon and bobby ball (laughs) yes 
exactly what I was thinking. I really like to just scroll down beyond Jaws of Revenge, as if to say, do you know if bother talking about it? But yet. And yet. <laughs> and yet. <laughs> so, Jaws the Revenge, which stars Michael Caine, uh, Lorraine Gary, who returns. I don't think she was in the third one, but she returned. She was in the first and second. Obviously, Brody's wife. Um, Lance Guest and Mario Van Peebles. Um, so we're introduced. The first time we see Lorraine Gary in this, by the way, she is wearing a purple knitted turtleneck with shoulder pads. That's all you need to know. It's amazing. Um, so I, this, I took I took pictures of Tom Berenger in a film I'm going to talk about <laughs> soon because I could not believe the clothes he was wearing in the film I watched. Um, so in this one, uh, Sean, the younger son, I think this basically ignores the third one. Not that I really care, but regardless, Sean, the younger son, Brody's son, is now a deputy in the Amity PD uh, in his Christmas. And he is, no spoiler because it happens right at the start, but he's killed by a shark. And it's actually quite an arresting opening sequence. Um, it does not maintain that quality. So Lorraine Gary, like, obviously in a trauma, she... She goes down to the Bahamas to stay with her other son, Michael, who's now played by Lance Guest. And the shark follows them down the coast of the United States. That's right. They're in a plane. The shark is in the sea. It follows them. And so the premise here is just terrible. This is personal revenge. This shark is coming to try to hunt down Lorraine Gary, basically. So you've got these magical elements. Uh, can I just stop you there and just say, um, if any marine biologists are listening to this show, if they could just write into uh, the men who talk at outlook.com, just, just let us know if that's realistic at all, really. <laughs> if you can be in like a long haul plane flight and if a shark can follow you in the water and then like tilt its head to the left, looking up to make sure you're still in the sky above it, it'd be great to know if we can clarify that. Um, so, yeah, by the way, Lance Guest playing Michael, who was played by Dennis Quaid in the previous film, who's older than him. You can the chronology again all over the place. So, yeah, this film has these magical elements to it. The shark wanting this revenge for the, in the first place and then somehow following the family swimming a thousand miles to find them. And then you've got. There's a scene where Lorraine Gary senses her son is in trouble. Literally, it's like a psychic sense that her son is in trouble. It's ma- um, actual magic. Yeah. And, and, and she's got this, this whole vicarious trauma of the sea, right? Um, even though she wasn't, she wasn't even there when any of the like actual horror occurred back on, back in Amity. So I don't know where it's coming from, but I'd say that, on the plus side, if you're looking for plus points, I think Lorraine Gary's depiction of acute grief is actually quite well done. Like, I like the way she acts quite oddly to kind of force normality back into her life and the way she's the kind of bi- bipolar way. She'll suddenly break into like racking tears in the midst of happiness. And so that part was quite good. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's a shark movie and like, Bruce the shark, Bruce Four, this is, I suppose. He's he's telepathic, clearly, and fast as light. 
and capable of leaping out of the water, but also completely useless as a shark because he repeatedly fails. Are you sure you didn't watch Superman 4? <laughs> he repeatedly fails to actually kill his prey. It's astonishing. It keeps happening. Um, but then again, he is very obviously made from rubber in this movie. So, uh, and then you got Michael Caine. I'm not even sure what to say about him, really. He's just there, <laughs> like, trying it on with Lorraine Gary for an hour and a half, really. <laughs> it's pretty much what happens. And mostly charmless. Logic, plot logic aside, um, I think the biggest crime with Jaws Revenge is that it's boring. Like, you know, I was saying how, like, Jaws 3D at least it has got a kind of mad, unpredictable um, kind of like like Dennis Quaid is on drugs kind of kind of energy to it. This is just a bit dull. There's not much plot and very little shark action. And the ending sequence is hot trash. It looks like a reshoot. And I went and checked online and lo and behold, yes, it was a reshoot. They shot that final sequence apparently a week before the film's release a week bloody hell yeah so you you know that mm. when they kicked open the door they said right we've just filmed this and this has got to be attached to the main reel before it gets the clitoch veil for the premiere <laughs> yeah it is i'd say jaws like at least you can have some fun with jaws 3d jaws revenge is just not fun on any level which is a pity because i like some of the actors in it so and i say yep. again lance guest should have been after last starfight it should have been a bigger star but i think the problem was he started in crap like this frankly i i do mario van peebles was in a few films like los locos and solo which are like my kind of like yeah. low budget action films i mean he's fine but he's he's all right he's lance guest mm. why i I got a feeling I know his name, but I think I'm thinking of you talking about him in the last Starfighter because was he in much? Yeah. No, I mean he was. He's he has a memorable small role in Halloween Two, and um, he is the star of the last Starfighter. But yeah, I don't know what it was about his career turn after that, but it it very much went downhill, and it's a pity because he's got he's got kind of charisma and presence, but yeah. Sometimes it just doesn't happen, I guess. Is there, um, before I move on to my next film, is there a Jaws 5? New. Oh, so this Thankfully. is it. This... Yeah, this is the end of the saga. And what a way to go out, honestly. So, so, so it depressing. literally just, so in summary of like the whole Jaws, the Jaws yes. series, it, it, they just get worse. Yes, they get very much worse. I would say that it's like, you know, you've got the golden beach of the original and then you've got the slightly seaweedy shallows of Jaws 2 and then a sudden plummet (laughs) into the abyss for Jaws 3D and then literally Jaws Revenge is like a Mariana Trench it's some twisted creature you find seven miles down in the sea it's a horror show but as I say again it's not even so good so bad it's good sort of thing yeah, so, that's a shame. Mm, yeah, yes, you've, shame. Got the, you've got the golden sandy infinite holiday beaches of Jaws, mm. and then Jaws, Jaws Four, Jaws: The Revenge is is effectively holding an ever burning grain of sand in a pair of tweezers, forcing it of someone's urethra. That's yeah, that's not that's not a good look for a. But but yeah, though. So the the fact that Jimmy Nail isn't in Jaws Two 
does that mean it's better or worse than Howling 2, the, the Curse of Stirba? Well, thinking about it, maybe that's what the series needed to revitalise it. Maybe it needed uh, Jimmy Nails. I suppose that's what we'll have to with, with sequels with immediate with immediate sequels we'll need to think oh you know the, with Jimmy with a with a sort of um, like earthy northerner with unmanageable hair in it like with a, with an accent that no one else would understand would that oh, have improve the film or not? They could have had it, and they could have had a scene where he like he's introduced and he like the camera is low to the ground and all you see you come in and he, and he's got this. He's got shark skin shoes on and it's kind of like a nod to crocodile shoes, but they're shark skin. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. He could have been Robert Shaw part two. Oh, it could have been. Yeah, they, they, they see a fin in the water and the mayor says, oh, my God, is that is that? And then it cuts to Jimmy Nello says, yes. And then he sings Ain't No Doubt <laughs> in reference to the fact that it's a shark. Like, ain't no doubt it's a shark. <laughs> yes. The more of his hits they could shoehorn in the better um this is a, a, a bit of a brief one because this was this ties into my i just i watched this this they claim netflix claims it's a film and it's not it's a documentary and it's a really sensationalist documentary this is called a view of our father new uh this is a documentary i'm not going to call it film on netflix and Oh, it does actually say a Netflix documentary when it pauses it. When you pause it, it says a Netflix film. Um, uh, now, this film is so sensationalist that it, it is based entirely on effectively a single revelation. So I'm going to I'm just going to talk the premise. I'm, I'm going to try and be as um, as give away as few spoilers as I can. If you imagine that there's a middle aged man called Dr. Donald Klein who works in an IVF clinic and he would make the women. Uh, you know, sort of sit with their legs splayed. And then he would say, right, I'm going to go next door and get your sperm sample. And then he would go next door for about 10 minutes and he'd come back in, buckling up his trousers with a flushed face and say, right there, right then, I've uh, got the sperm sample you chose. And then he would impregnate them. So that's all I need to say effectively about the premise. He he was a doctor, uh, uh, like a family doctor that specializes in IVF in, in Indianapolis. Oh, sorry, in Indiana, um, I think in like the 80s, 70s, 80s. And the, the, it's not so much the, the, the content, because obviously what he did was awful. But mm. it's just it's just the way that it's presented. I was watching mm. it and thinking it, the, the the low cellos, um, you know, mm. and the, the screeching violins. And I thought, can you just like stop? The thing is, the people, the people involved in this, it's, it's so dark. And what mm. happened was, yeah, and, and, and so because, you know, people in this town are effectively marrying their siblings. It's quite full on and quite widespread. Oof, yeah. And yet and yet it's all about it treats it like it's a, all about the next reveal. Like the, the amount of siblings and the, and, the, and the reveals and so on. And I just watched it thinking. Surely the people who were interviewed with this just thought this is really sensationalist and I don't really want to be involved. Um, and But what's interesting is when it does cut to the, um, the, I think it's like the district attorney was involved or when it cuts to people who worked in the same uh, surgery, what they have to say is, is really interesting. Mm. And and then when it moves away from fact and moves towards treating it like it's this sort of uh, building to a crescendo horror, it's just nonsense. And there's 
and there, there are even scenes when it hints towards like um it's almost like they know the filmmakers know oh, let's let's really make this as just awful and cheesy as we can and they mention cults and the supernatural mm. and then they sort of veer away from it and i just thought you're really throwing everything in here whereas this could have been quite a a sober look at an an awful situation and like really breaking it down and where the faults uh, where the faults and the gaps in the law should apply and they would have been much more interested and much more focused than and what really got on my nerves as well and it, the film really really digs its claws into this is how he they say he was an upstanding member of the community and like a, a like a ranking member of the church as if those people are somehow less should be less uh, likely to be corrupt than others when <laughs> they're clearly more likely to be <laughs> corrupt. And uh, yeah, the whole thing just left a really bad taste in my mouth. And um, yeah, there, there is some, there, there, there's some really telling live clips where uh, he was recorded when he, when he realizes he's been caught out and he's talking to someone that he basically impregnated. And mm. and it, and his entire defense and it, it, it was quite shocking. Just he all he can say is, if this comes out, then it will ruin my life. Like my wife will leave me. Mm. I will be I will be affected. And he literally cannot see beyond himself. And that mm. was quite quite eye opening. And like my God, you don't realize like what you've done and the lives you've affected and the the extent of what what you've done. And he's it's so solipsistic. So that was. But again, if it was more about that, more about the a deep dive into that, you know, basically science and facts, um, then I would have been more on board with it. But it's too sensationalist, and it's everything I dislike about documentaries. Yeah, it's that combination. Well, it sounds like one of those stories that really doesn't need to be sensationalized it can yeah. speak for itself and uh there's that that part of it bothers me about especially modern documentaries but also it's it gets a lot of these things get so bogged down in like atmosphere and build up and tension building and all that kind of stuff that actually the amount of information that's being conveyed is quite low and it's like yes right okay we get it you're going to give us a little cliffhanger and then you're going to you're going to treat this like it's a narrative movie so you're going to have like a slight the, the, hand it's just tell us the facts that's all you yeah, need to do there's all there's only so only only so many times you can cut to another person who's been affected by this terrible situation and then and then crying on camera saying oh, i couldn't believe it i couldn't believe what he was capable of and it's like yeah but I, but i know what he's capable of so we can move on from that now and then <laughs> yes Oh, that's disappointing. Is it like a single movie though? It's not like a mini. I haven't stretched it out to a mini series. It, it, it's like a hundred minutes or something. No, no, no it's hundred minutes. But yeah, I've just it was one of those. I remember reading a book. I can't remember who the author was, and it was every single chapter was a cliffhanger, and I just thought, just write a fucking book, just honestly, and stop trying to write to the lowest common denominator. Like my, I, I do have the attention span. If this story is good enough to like to flip a page. Um, I don't have to be teased into it. And that's Our Father on Netflix. Okay. Yeah. This one I'll skip. <laughs> uh, the Living Daylights. Nice. The Bond films are still on Prime, although I think they're leaving soon. So clearly everyone should just jump straight Christ, into Timothy That Bond. was brief. That was literally a couple of months they were all on there, wasn't it? That's not... Yeah. It's a weird one. I guess they're going back to the 
dedicated MGM channel or something. I don't know. Anyway, um, so the Living Daylights. Yes, this was Timothy Dalton's first foray, um, and so was he after Roger Moore? Yes. Oh, okay. I guess Roger Moore. What would Roger Moore's last one have been? A View to a Kill, maybe. I know in A View to a Kill, he's like he's twenty three years older than his co star, which is a bit creepy. But it was also the one with Christopher Walken, so that was cool. And Grace Jones, in fact. So anyway, Living Daylights. So in this, Bond's first mission is to help this KGB general defect, but it actually turns out he's helped the enemy to escape. And through various convolutions, Bond ends up with the KGB dude's hot girlfriend. And then they traipse across some lovely locations to track down this KGB guy who's actually an arms dealer uh, in order to stop this big arms deal between uh, the KGB and this dodgy US general. It's all very Cold War. Uh, This was obviously made in, what, I'm going to say 1987? and i think that's right yeah i think that's pretty much it so this one covers vienna tangier afghanistan not sure a british agent would be quite as welcome in afghanistan these days but it does there is at least a russian enemy in this so that brings it up to date so this one was um i i think with the especially with both of the dalton ones actually they're criticized for their lack of humor but I feel a bit like that's like criticizing Batman 1989 for being too dark. Like if you compare the, this movie living daylights to like the Daniel Craig movies, it seems pretty lighthearted, frankly. I mean, it still has a lot more of those like frivolous classic bond elements like Hughes gadgets and flirting with money, penny and a very passive bond girl. And these bevies of hot ladies. In fact, actually, there's just this casual sexism throughout the film. Um, But Dalton, he does seem much angrier and more bitter and more dangerous than Roger Moore, I'd say. Much less doddering. It's it's quite handsomely made. It's directed by John Glenn. It's quite quite nicely shot. It's a bit stagey at times. Uh, There's a lot of medium shots and studio lighting and and some of the performances are well broad as anything in like 1960s bond um the final action scene is this gunfight at an airport which is just all chaos and no coherency and there's this final fight on a plane which has this amazing stunt sequence in it but the actual fight is so ridiculously one-sided that it just there's just no tension there it's a pity there's this lovely sweeping John Barry score. Um, and actually, John Barry has a cameo in the movie as hmm. a conductor, in fact. Well, like a Bus train conductor? conductor. <laughs> 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 uh, overall, yes, it's an average movie, I would say. It's like a, a reasonably intriguing plot. And Dalton is a good Bond. I think the direction's a bit pedestrian and the action editing is quite poor and it it lacks iconic scenes. Like, if I think of this film, I can't think of... Well, I suppose if except the last stunt, but other than that, it really doesn't have anything... You know, you think of someone like Goldeneye, you remember all the set pieces? Possibly 
because of yeah. the Nintendo 64, to be fair. But, but I yeah, of, I thought it was a bit average, unfortunately. When I think of these films, I obviously think of the, the games on the Amstrad CPC 4646 and 28+. But mm. also, uh, my mum is, is like an ardent fan of... of as, Timothy Dalton as Bond. And I remember her saying that, you know, that after Roger Moore, he was kind of, because she would have been in her mid to late 20s when this was released, mm. and thinking that he was that this sort of, because I think he smoked cigarettes, like this kind of dangerous, sultry, smoky, you know, much more than the sort of silly, jokey Bond that Moore was, yeah. which is fine, because, you know, everyone oh, yeah. has their own Bond. But yeah, it, whenever I, whenever anyone talks about these Timothy Dalton films, which are films that I've probably only seen parts of, back when my nan was alive and they were on tv at christmas i would feel like i should watch them because of course he only did two and yeah I, I i feel like i should watch them just because of the place they have in my sort of family history with my mum being such a fan of them and um but like i i, I i've got this uh, image in my head of just how timothy dalton is and i can imagine him being quite intense and because he's younger than roger moore maybe doing a few more of his own stunts being a bit more uh, physical in, in the films yes and, yeah, yeah and apparently so, he did insist on doing his own stunts where possible. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, of course cool. for for people of like my my generation, apart from you know, from that you've got like Timothy Dalton because he's mostly a stage actor. You've got the Bond films, Beautician and the Beast, and then Hot Fuzz. You know, and generally but he'd already so, done um, Flash Gordon, so that's okay. Hmm. But no, I think Timothy Dalton is secretly, I can imagine, he, obviously he's in our bar. He's in yeah. our bar, like leaning on the jukebox, telling brilliant stories Yeah. Uh, to, uh, to Brian Cox. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I just think that... God, that'd be... Yeah, a, this, oh, imagine, listen, I could just listen to those two all day. Those voices. <laughs> yeah. or All night, in fact. Lulling yeah. me to sleep. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, it, I can imagine, I can imagine that... Um, I, I need to watch them, basically, is what I'm saying. Have you not seen either of them? No, or, not not right. as far as I'm aware. Yeah, I, right. I, I do. Well, I, and, I, and I've been it, feeling like I should for, like, over 20 years. I think in a way, it's almost like, I think it would help if, if I'd watched one or more Roger Moore movies before going into this one, because I think, actually, it would have been... You know, watching how ridiculous they became and how doddery he became, and how silly they uh, they'd become. I think watching something like Living Daylights would have been a real shock to the system in a good way. Mm. And um, yeah, so maybe maybe you just have to watch A View to a Kill with Christopher Walken <laughs> and Grace Jones beforehand. <laughs> um, do you want to go straight into that, or shall I move on? Because it makes sense for you to do that if it's a do you want me to go on to License to Kill? Yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah. Okay. Which is also on Prime. For the time being. So it's directed by John Glenn again, but with a bit more energy this time, I'd say. The main guy, bad guy in this one is none other than Robert Darby. Um, and <laughs> one of his henchmen is Benicio Del Toro as well. Which wow. is amusing. It has one of the worst Bond themes. Uh We'll just say that from the start. There's a really cool opening who, who, stunt. Who, who sang the Bond? Thing? I can't even remember. I can't even remember how it goes. Because I remember the Living Daylights. But yeah, don't know. It's probably some crooner. Um, so it's got a really cool opening stunt. This movie, where 
they they're chasing someone in a uh in a they've got a helicopter and they're chasing someone in a plane and they attach like a hook onto the plane and upend the plane in midair in order to catch them and i was thinking this is so obviously an inspiration on dark knight rises <laughs> like it's literally what happens at the start of dark knight rises but it's really cool it's really well done so anyway so robert darby um is that man who they're catching he plays sanchez who's a colombian drug dealer major colombian drug dealer so he's busted but then he's freed uh, from captivity by a u.s double agent um everett mcgill yeah oh my god the people under the, the children of the stairs whatever the film was called that yeah. man has gravitas yes um he was also in twin peaks as well he's really good um so he's a real man yeah license kill yes uh dark really dark like within like i'll explain more of the plot in a minute but like within the first 20 minutes a woman has been raped and murdered by drug dealers and a guy has been fed to a shark legs first. So clearly James Bond wants revenge on Sanchez. The trouble is that Sanchez has fled to Cuba, which is outside Bond's or CIA jurisdiction. So Bond has to go rogue to take him down. Um except there are other agencies with an interest in Sanchez as well. So they're all kind of colliding on the way to get him. Um, I like what I like about this film is how Bond has this personal vendetta, which genuinely affects his judgment on things and, and how it, it affects the other double crossing interests that gravitate around Sanchez as well. And there's a sense of real menace in this movie. The feeling that Bond is genuinely out of his depth he looks actually ruffled at times, like his confidence and swagger is just an act. And I don't think you really see that again until Daniel Craig. Mm. The pacing is very swift, much swifter than Living Daylights. It feels like events are slightly out of control and, and fraught. And I think part of part of why it feels more exciting is because, really, is because Michael Kamen does the music. He did... Die Hard, of course, but he also did all the Lethal Weapon films and Last Boy Scout. And I, while I think that John Barry is is really good at doing getting kind of that sweeping Bond mood, I don't. No one really does action movie music quite like Michael Kamen. He just gets the tension just right. Uh, it feels really propulsive. Um, the, there's a couple of Bond girls in this who happen to be two of the hottest, but also two of the most convincingly capable so that's cool there is i will say there is a ninja scene in this movie and one oh. of the ninjas genuinely says hiya as they're attacking they actually make that noise what like greeting timothy dalton or <laughs> yeah they say hiya I bet. <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> we've um, gathered the greatest ninjas in the world from abu vale um yeah so overall I think it's a significant step up from Daylights because okay. of the sheer level of tension and just the more interesting locations, like it's kind of like Central America type area. And and that sense of menace is really cool. And Robert Davies really quite scary in it. So it's good. I like this a lot more than so, Daylights. So this was... So you said that Living Dallas was an average film. This is a good Bond film. Yes, I would say this is a good Bond film, yeah. 
and this was uh, Livendellos. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of guessing here, but Livendellos was 87, so uh, I'm guessing that License to Kill was 89. I think so, yeah. Or 90. So then you're talking the next Bond film wasn't until 95. So why was it was it the, the change in tone to a more full-on tone that put people off? And, I don't know. I mean, I don't... Th- that six years, surely there hasn't been a six-year gap since. Well, uh, I don't know. Well, there was... So, okay. When was Die Another Day? It was early 2000s. It wasn't until 2000. Was it 2001, maybe? 2000? And then there was Casino Royale, was 2006. Oh, so, yeah. So there's a good five, six, six. There's a pretty well. big gap between Spectre and. Uh, sorry, Skyfall and Spectre as well, wasn't there? No, there's like three or four years, isn't it? Isn't uh, not, not, not six plus. Well, Spectre, Skyfall was 2012, and then. The latest one was 20. Well, but then it was delayed. I don't know. Yeah, oh, I but see. I do think. I mean, I don't. Th- I don't think it did terribly badly. But I guess they've probably. What I suspect happened is that the box office for License to Kill was a decline from the previous one. So maybe they just saw the writing was on the wall. I think Dalton was going to do another. Bond movie, but I guess we just never got around to it. But well, do you know what? From, just stuff. purely from listening to what you've said, I kind of wanted to, so I could watch that trilogy because, yeah, as much as I like Pierce Brosnan, it's more it's more the the winky, lighthearted sort of stuff. Whereas, yeah, so would yeah, you I say that? It, I think it was, was done with it. Was Timothy thing. Dalton's License to Kill? Is it darker than say Goldeneye? In tone? Oh yeah, yeah, really. Oh wow, it's, it's really grim. Like easily the darkest until the Craig movies came along, I would say. Well, I mean, <laughs> the first, the original, well, I I mean, I always remember, like, the best Bond films having that sense of, like, menace and fear to them, but they did become a bit silly, I would say. Like, and then, of course, like, obviously the Sean Connery ones took themselves a, a little bit more seriously than Roger Moore, but then they were also quite racist, so it's, it's a bit of a tough sell, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, I suppose, yeah, in, in a slight change of uh, hail and pace, I'm moving towards the early 90s. So moving from 1989's License to Kill, moving to 1991's Shattered, starring Tom Berenger. Not the 2022 film starring uh, Frank Grillo which has one of the worst posters I've ever seen. Um, I don't know if you remember, a good few episodes ago, years and years and years ago, I was talking about uh, I'd finally got around to seeing a film and I had a, an image burned in my mind that I watched on television on the Savalas years ago and it was Goldie Horn and John Hurd in a lift shaft and the eyes were kind of just lit by light and he falls down it and that turned out to be the final sequence in deceived which i think was also 1991 and this shattered comes from the same sort of thing where it it's that sort of familial thriller uh, where at the start of it it just shows a car that gets slowly more and more out of control in a pov shot down a highway it crashes a woman jumps out but then the, the the dude is in it until it literally bounces down the bottom of this ravine and he is put together again through reconstructive surgery and has absolute amnesia. Mm. 
But within a week, his his back at work, his uh, his job is like one of the most high paid architects in the world. Even even though he doesn't know who he is, they're like, "Are you okay to go back to designing this city that costs hundreds of millions of dollars?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah." Just give, just give me it. It'll come flooding back. Give, give me a laser pointer in the model, and I'll I'll point like a motherfucker. Um, and but this is one of those. This is this film is is so early nineties because you've got. Bob Hoskins as a pet shop owner slash private investigator. Uh, I I forgot to to say this as well. I forgot to say to you before I go into this, I didn't add this to my list, but I watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Good. Um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is one of the best films ever made. (laughs) Hands down. (laughs) Absolutely. I watched it because I watched it so many times I was growing up and I totally forgot about it. And I watched it with Bob Hoskins. Uh, not with him, but with him in mind. And there's something about his performance. He is he is hips deep. He is like he he's doesn't. For he, he's so like sweaty and nasty. And the woman who owned that like round the corner ginnery that he's always knocking about with it, she wouldn't yeah. fancy him. But it's such. I, I, this is completely off the cuff. I haven't put any notes, but it's such an energized special film that absolutely captures a moment in time that. There will never be another film like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and it feels like it should be part of the curriculum that everyone should watch it because there's, it, it feels magical. Yes, watching and that I, film. I, well, I mean, I, I don't see why it shouldn't be a part of a film studies course, for example, because I mean, it did, like Zemeckis is a student of film, and he clearly knows, he deeply understands, like, both slapstick comedy. Slapstick cartoon comedy and hard-boiled film noir as well, and he chucks them together in just a beautiful way. It's here. You, you people always talk about films that have like two halves, and you, and you get something like um, I don't know, uh, From Dust Till Dawn, where it's yeah. half gangster, half horror. The, the, this this film, when like when it plows on until that moment that Bob Hoskins suck the cork out of his bottle of wild turkey, goes to drink it, pours it on the floor like a weirdly heartrending scene mm. and then and then goes to toontown it it's such a film of two halves that completely and utterly works and i was i was watching it and thinking there's not like there's not a misjudged second in this film <laughs> like it can't it like from from the animation to 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 the jokes to like you say to the to the how how the noir is dealt with to to the the production design, like yeah. nothing puts a foot wrong. Whenever, whenever Christopher um, Lloyd is on screen, he's genuinely terrifying. Mm-hmm. You, you know, whenever something funny happens, it's genuinely funny. It's it's whenever any special effect happens, it's still mesmerizing even now. It, yes. it feels like a an actual part of history as opposed to just a film. Amazing stuff. I, I I can't believe I forgot to mention it, it, and I liked it as much. Anyway, back to Shattered with Tom Berenger. <laughs> he um really seriously, everyone needs to see the poster for Shattered with Frank Grillo. Yeah, um, let me get let me get up. It so is we can... unbelievable because it's like it's like a puzzle. It's like whose hand is that? Whose where is? Frank Grillo's shoulder going. Why is John Malkovich tiny? And why is his beard overlapping the woman's hair? 
Why is everyone wearing like grey turtlenecks? <laughs> it's unbelievable. And it says from the I she love him to death from the director of Kidnap and White Lines, like that means anything to anyone. <laughs> oh my goodness me. Yeah, it's uh, it, it look it, it looks terrible. One of us will probably end up watching it. Probably, probably <laughs> you, hopefully. Probably, um, probably me. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so so the the proper shattered, you know, shattered, not that one from nineteen ninety one. It's it's a proper early nineties um, thriller in that you know Tom Ranger wakes up and he's hasn't got a Scooby Doo he is and he's bumbling. He hasn't got a John Woo who he is and he's bumbling round and his wife said, oh yeah, you know, you you this architect. And he's like, oh, okay. And then he sort of delves into his own history and starts unraveling stuff. Corbin Burnson, he of the, the by the way, I'm doing this with extreme toothache this this whole episode. Corbin Burnson, who will be would be in the dentist, I want to say trilogy in the future, which is probably another one for you to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and Joanne Wally Kilmer, Bob Hoskins are all in this. And it, I didn't. My problem with this, what happened was, and I'm not going to say anything more about the plot really. Um, when I put this on, as as the smoky, jazz-laden subtitles were like smokily rising up on the screen, I just sort of typed in "shattered uh, Tom Berenger. and on 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 Google it just said like one of the most ridiculous twists in movies. So I knew there was a twist, uh-huh. and and but the, within fifteen minutes in, you you know what it is, <laughs> you know what it is. Um, so, but it's just the way it gets to it. It, it's I'm trying to think of I know people say they watch film they know the twist and it's not so much that that is it that makes this film genius in its cheesiness it's to the extent that situations and characters and and conversations arise and the way that the the information given is so limited as to force it down this certain funnel if you know what I mean mm-hmm. like. There are situations where he's walking down the beach with a woman who like used to be really good friends with him before the accident, and she'll just say some stuff to him. And you just, like, knowing the denouement of the film, you'd think, if you had literally just said, right, we're on a beach, and no one's listened to us, instead of saying something to you that I've, that, like, I have no, I have no kind of, you know, I've got no what's the term, like, ball in the game sort of thing, I can just say the truth. But instead, they just talk a lot of bollocks and and then and then run off down the beach into the night. And so like, mm-hmm. hey, could you, you could have just you could have just explained the situation, and he'd be like, "Oh, that's what's happening." But it's just it's so early nineties. I can't think of any other way to describe it. And and the, and the way at the end of the film, Bob Hoskins is the person that delivers the line that, "Oh my God, you're actually," and then he says a name. It's it reminded me of like watching the X Factor where they said. And mm-hmm. you're through to the next round, and everyone goes nuts. It's mm-hmm. that kind of delivery, and it's like Bob Hoskins in this film. He knows what kinds of film he's in. He knows. Um, if you like films like Deceived or The Hand That Rots the Cradle or Basic Instinct or those sort, you know, uh, you know, a, a loving couple, and is it all as it seems? It is. Yeah. This is kind of mid budget, mid budget, yeah. The stuff that is you don't really get these days. Uh, yeah. It's it's there's a scene where they go to the the, the main uh, area of the, the, the there's the kind of heart of this film that uh, the area in this film the location of this film that has the sort of main reveal in it. They they in this like L.A. 
beautiful you know or sorry san francisco it's all the, the cinematography is fantastic like when they're driving around you just want to go on holiday there but then he says he follows his wife one night to this place and it's literally it looks like they've stumbled onto a john carpenter set from the early 80s there's yeah. a ba- rusting barrels everywhere thick fog you can't see more than a few feet and i thought what is happening in this film uh, but it's it's kind of wonderfully 90s so by all means if you like if you like mid-budget early 90s late 80s thrillers for god's sake watch shat with tom berenger and this clothes unbelievable when he goes back to the scene of his crash he's wearing a lemon turtleneck and i thought you're like you're in you're hiking in the in the like the hills why you've you've got a lemon turtleneck on and and there's a bit where his wife says he's talking to his wife and saying i can't believe you ever love me you know and she's looking at him and she said i'd do anything for you you're the you're the most beautiful man i know i'll do anything for you and then it cuts to him and he's standing there hunched over slightly and he's got about four four jumpers on <laughs> they're all brown and i thought really you obviously <laughs> loved him but you certainly didn't choose his wardrobe um so so yeah shattered film of the week <laughs> brilliant and I've only got half of another film to talk about. Okay. Well, I suppose I can. Shall I quickly whiz through Event Horizon then? Oh my! That's no, my it won't be a whiz. We've got a good twenty minutes on this. <laughs> uh, okay. So this movie, um, it came out in. I want to say nineteen ninety-seven. I'm gonna say nineteen ninety-seven. Directed by. Paul W. S. Anderson, and it's a a horror movie. I suppose t- Paul W. S. Anderson. What would he have been known for? He would have done shopping by then, but he would not yet have done Resident Evil. I don't know. Anyway, so this is him, and stars Sam Neill, um, and Lawrence Fishburne, and Sean Pertwee, amongst others. They're basically on this ship which is going to find this other ship called Vent Horizon, uh, which is on the outskirts of the solar system, and they've lost contact with them. And they board this ship, which um, Sam Neill's character designed, I think. And, yeah, so they board it, and they find the crew dead, and lots of weird things start happening and then they realize well you know cut a long story short there's a portal to hell there and uh, yeah so they're in a bit of a spot of bother and it's not completely clear that the ship is going to let them leave not without sending them completely mad first so this is quite a weird role i found for sam neil because he's presented early on as our kind of relatable hero and he's obviously very relatable everyman type actor but but this is the this is the role that's usually occupied by one the guy who sort of sees things as they really are. But here he's Sam Neill's he's like really antagonistic from the very start. He's actually quite an annoying negative character, which I think could have been an interesting piece of characterization, sort of playing with our expectations. But I think the writing's a bit too basic. It's sort of like this film is like it's like Solaris meets Flatliners. That's how I felt about it. And but it, it's it's too it's too swift, it's too fast paced, it's like absurdly fast paced, which means that it feels like the plot is being summarized before our very eyes. Like there are exposition scenes and it's honestly like 
it's just people it's just bullet points really just really cracking on with it and i think this a lot of this is down to paul ws anderson because i think you get someone like resident evil which was clearly a better fit for him because he's a very kinetic type of filmmaker and he's Clearly, even in this, he's far more comfortable with the action than the tension. Like the tension scenes, they just he just races through them, um, and they kind of like there's some half decent scares, I'd say. Like especially with Sam Neill's character and his wife who has no eyes, dead wife who has no eyes. So that's quite creepy. But he, he just is too impatient, you know, to really build any proper tension, and he just just cannot wait to get to that final act and start throwing people around in slow motion. That's what he really wants to do. And I think for me, like the best horror will take a simplistic idea and elevate it. Um, you know, like distilling its elements, creating something mythic, which might tap into our fundamental fears. Because you think about like classic horror, like, well, it's like take alien, for example, it's kind of similar in a superficial way but that was a, a very basic haunted house movie which elevated its material i feel like event horizon actually goes the other way it's something it's quite a cerebral idea of this thing that plays on your this hell being something which plays on your deepest fears but it so it takes that kind of idea which is pretty smart and just and dumbs it down so it's the other direction and it ends up in a similar place, I feel, to Sunshine, that Danny Boyle film, where the greatest threat in the movie is the editing. And you get like this hellish imagery flashing before our eyes, but nothing, nothing re- is so fast that nothing actually re- registers or resonates. It's just a kind of massive jumbled images. And, and that's kind of like, it kind of sums up the movie in a way. It's like, fast and flashy but it just doesn't it doesn't leave anything behind it doesn't resonate at all there's nothing memorable about it which is a pity i think i like this more than you because i, I, I do i remember watching i remember the in, in i'm trying to think i watched this in like the early two i watched it in the 90s and then i watched it a few times in the 2000s yeah and i remember the uh special effects being um yeah <laughs> As the French say, yeah. problematique. Because in 1997, I don't know if you all remember, was in terms of CG, was the same year that Spawn was released, mm. where the special effects in Hell, when when um, I think it's Michael Jai White's character is talking to Satan, looks like a PS1 cutscene. And but I think that for me personally, I'm not someone who likes films set in space. Unless it's mm. something like, um, I always forget the name of it, the one with Ben Foster and Dennis Quaid. I think it begins with a P. You'll Pandorum. know this, please. Pandorum. I like it when it's set in space and it's a horror film. But mm. when I first watched this film in 97, it was like, oh, this is a film set in space. And I thought, oh, here we go, more bloody Star Wars nonsense. And I put it on. And because it was just such an out-and-out horror, as kind yeah. of classless as it was, I thought, oh, Actually, it's in space, you know, in in a in a in a in a sort of closed down location. It's effectively a haunted house movie, yeah. and and I think that's why I really took to it because it was kind of my link to when I was like fourteen to like wow, I can like films in space. Mm. I have not watched this film in probably going on twenty years, <laughs> so I 
I, I'm I'm up for watching it again. Is mm. where, where's where is it streaming? I watched this on Rakuten, the worst streaming service. By the way, <laughs> you know Rakuten, right? The worst streaming service. <laughs> like it yes. went. It, like I thought it was bad before, but it it went to another level actually recently because I was I looked for something probably this in fact, but I was on the app because I have to have that installed obviously. So I was on the app and I searched for the movie and instead of it coming up with, oh, you know, like buy now or rent now, it was like a box which said, how do I watch? And so I clicked on the box on the app and it told me the end, in order to access this movie, you need to go onto the website um, to purchase your rental um, and then come back to the app. So I went off onto the browser search for the film on the website on the Rakuten website activated it on the website and then had to reopen the app in order to actually watch what I just entered on the website it's like oh my god I thought this couldn't get any worse and they've managed to find another way to piss me off like it how is that a useful design decision for anyone it's like this week we're sponsored by Rakuten (laughs) The best streaming service. Uh, <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Rakuten, the worst streaming service. Yeah. It's uh, the, the last thing I want to say is just I watched that night I was in the hotel. I was a miasma of tiredness. And Faye said to me, look, I'll go to sleep. I'll look after Axel. You're on holiday. You treat this, this nice four-star hotel. Stay awake as long as you want and just like keep watching films. And I was sat there just so tired and just forcing back wine just because I'm on holiday. I'm on holiday. And after um, uh, The Running Man had finished, Dirty Harry started a film I've never seen with Andrew Robinson and obviously Clint Eastwood. And I made it through about 25 minutes of that film. And I just thought, I'm so tired. This is ridiculous. I'm just staying awake like a, like a teenager, you know, just cause I can. And I went to bed, but I just wanted to say, um, the music to that film is absolutely fantastic. Mm. Like I, I, I can't, I think it's is it Lalo Schifrin. Oh, Lalo Schifrin. Yeah. Like uh, it, it's, it's so like this, like this jazz, percussion mm-hmm. mix and I and I, I thought I'm so tired but I just I had that in my mind and when I woke up in the morning and I was like showering I thought I have to remember no matter how drunk and tired I was last night that Lalo Schifrin's jazz soundtrack to Dirty Harry it's fantastic so yeah I need to spend more time I will watch the, I know you've watched the Dirty Harry films mm-hmm. um, because I know in the third one they in- inject comedy because at some point he shoots someone in the back of the bulls as they run up some stairs so <laughs> But I, I will watch. I will watch those. But yeah, the, the film seemed really good. Um, but the mute, the it's soundtrack, good. fantastic. Yeah. Oh yeah. Rupert, and with that, it is time to talk about our films of the week. Mm. Wow. Mine. I mean, look at mine. You know, mm-hmm. the island. The island, not that one. Shattered. Our father did. You want scoundrels to run a man. 1408 and half or a third of Dirty Harry. Um, I want to say 1408 because I do like coming across mid-tier horrors that mm. stay in the mind. That said, I would happily, if, like, I, please, everyone watch, regardless of how many times you've seen it, just watch Shoe Friend Roger Rabbit. It just makes you a better person. Mm. But 
14 08 because I thought, oh, forget, it made me want to watch The Raven. It made me want to watch a lot of films with John Cusack in. And mm-hmm. it, it's, it's a good mid 2000s horror film, apart from that weird yellow filter. Mm-hmm. Um, so 14 08, I would say, is my film of the week. Our Father is, if we're going to do it, like my film not of the week, <laughs> Peyton Bending. Um, yeah, do you think that sepia filter is. Is, is that still a hangover from seven? I'm not sure. Seems but that like was a long what, time afterwards. That was more than 95, 97, whenever yeah. that was. 95 yeah. originally, yeah. Um, okay, well, I will go with... I mean, Jaws is the best film I've seen this week, mm. but I'm going to go with License to Kill because I was most pleasantly oh, nice. surprised by that. Like, especially after The Living Daylights, which is so kind of ordinary. And then License to Kill had this... It was just had so much more tension and excitement and intensity to it that I enjoyed that a lot more. So, yeah, License to Kill. A pity that you never got to finish his trilogy, but there you go. Yeah, yeah that is real shame. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to set the Arkans now for the, mm-hmm. for the next episode, which is Maria Conchita Alonso to Sam Neill in as few steps as possible without using Google and feel free to message me, uh, you know, on WhatsApp or the men who talk at outlook.com. And I'd like to end this episode, Rupert episode 54 of Kino kingdom mm-hmm. by singing an acapella version of case that my, the version my mother used to sing to me, if that's okay. Frankly, it's about time. Yeah. That. When I was just a little boy, I asked my mother, what would I be? Would I be pretty? Would I be rich? Here's what she said to me. No, you won't. (laughs) 